Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Winona Merritt on July 19, 2022. Winnie grew up a poor northern girl who married into a well-to-do southern family and started raising a family in the south in the early 60s. Before becoming a Baha'i, she was involved in promoting racial justice in her own small way. After becoming a Baha'i, her vision broadened and she and her husband moved to Barbados and lived there for 12 years. Ironically, it was her husband who studied agriculture in college, but it was Winnie that became the self-taught agriculturalist, helping the agricultural efforts in the Caribbean islands, as well as in the States. She recently published a book, Food, Farmer, and Community, Agriculture and the Reconstruction of the World. She explains how agriculture is fundamental to a stable society. I started the interview by asking Winnie where she grew up. And what was religious life like growing up? I was born in the Depression in 1937 to the uh, small town in the middle of New York State in the Finger Lakes area. It was surrounded by dairy farms, but my parents worked at the Smith Corona typewriter factory in town. And when I was about five years old, it blackened its windows and began tooling infantry rifles for World War II. And I I didn't understand what had happened, but when the news came on the radio, my father became very tense. He was an older man, but he could see that it wasn't going well, and he would eventually be drafted, which was true. Our town was separated. Religious life was separated into maybe six Protestant churches and a Catholic congregation. And, well, my mother took us to the Methodist church. My father didn't go until he was an older man. When time came for our high school graduating class to have their baccalaureate service, we uh, Protestant kids had a separate one. It was a multi-faith baccalaureate service. And then the Catholic friends were required to go to their church. But most of those Catholic graduates skipped that service and joined us. That event solidified my growing thought that there's just one God and many paths that lead to that creator. And it was decades later that the Baha'i statement, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens, struck a chord in my heart. And that led me to investigate the faith. Winnie, what was your spiritual journey that actually led you to becoming aware of the Baha'i faith? Well, when I was at Cornell, I was really troubled about religion and looking for one that had diversity in its congregations and acceptance of all people. I was in the Methodist Youth Fellowship there asking questions like, What happens to all the people who've never heard of Christ? If God created them, does he really condemn them for not knowing Jesus? And 
Well, my soon-to-be Methodist husband was there searching too. He was just out of the Coast Guard and, and from a moderately wealthy Southern family, I being from a fairly poor Northern background. I was an outspoken Yankee girl, and my family struggled to make ends meet. So it was a culture shock to marry into the South. I'm going to get to how it led me to be a Baha'i, but it was a journey. We went back to his small town in North Carolina. There I encountered segregation and began the journey of understanding systemic racism. It was 1957, just a couple of years after the 1954 Supreme Court decision that declared that separate but equal was not valid and integration had to happen in the schools. Well, we newlyweds were active during that period. I'm saying active in civil rights, but it was low-key, small town, family who helped founded the town, trying to be wise. We took our children to the family's all-white Methodist church. We worshiped occasionally with the all-black congregations, but it was a fine line to try to walk between family loyalty, and not all of those were racist as such, but a small town, as you might have guessed, being loyal to our convictions that racism was wrong. So one day, while I'm meeting with my integrated Girl Scout troop, I came upon a picture of Buddha and of Christ in the Sunday school room of another congregation. And there was a big red X mark on Buddha's belly. Well, it was so blatantly offensive to me that together with some other circumstances, I began to search for a more inclusive belief system. At that time, I looked high and low. And when I was about to give up on a search for another faith and had decided to try meditation, a Baha'i became my yoga instructor. And he and others helped to teach me and my husband about the Baha'i faith. And that had everything that we'd been looking for. So in June 1973, we both realized that we were already Baha'is. It took me a while because I had been raised to be very skeptical. My mama used to say, if it's too good to be true, there's a fly in the ointment somewhere. I haven't found the fly in the ointment yet, by the way. In this faith, it teaches that all the religions are sent by one creator in a progressive revelation. So I could accept my Bible was the truth, telling about progressive revelation all the way from Adam right through Christ. And that his messengers arise over the ages to lead the people at different times in history and in different places around the globe. So humanity is really being educated to create, you know, an ever-advancing civilization that's based on spiritual values that are eternal, while the social circumstances are going to change and evolve over the ages. And so they are 
all my concerns were answered. That's how I came to learn about the faith. So I have a question about your Girl Scout troop, because I just want to get a sense of what the environment was like when you were searching for something more inclusive. It struck me that you said you had an integrated Girl Scout troop. Was that allowed, or was that, for some reason, okay? That was allowed in that time in the nineteen early 1970s. So the schools had been integrated by then. I definitely wanted an integrative troop, and it worked really well. The children became good friends. And the other question I had was about going to the all-black congregation sometimes for church. Was that something that you alone and your husband wanted to do, or was it something that your congregation wanted to do? It wasn't our congregation. It hadn't gotten to that place yet during the 60s. You know, when the um, civil rights in 1964, the legislation and so on came about, we had a sort of, was an underground group, biracial group, but we met often in each other's homes trying to do our little bit to bring justice in small ways in that town. As part of that group, I learned, because there were black ministers in it, about these churches and my husband too. I'm talking me because my husband's gone on, but we were a team. And so occasionally we would go to these churches, which always welcomed us. They were so friendly and courteous and always asked their visitors to say a word. Winnie, you recently published a book entitled Food, Farmer, and Community with the subtitle Agriculture and the Reconstruction of the World. You had mentioned that you went to Cornell. Is this what you studied at Cornell? No, my husband did, though. That's how we met there. I was in the School of Home Economics because that was a way that I could go with tuition-free, and I got scholarships. I was able to go to Cornell, whereas my family had previously not been able to do such things as that. I am not educated in agriculture. It's all self-taught. And when did this book get published? When did you write this book? The first time I tried was in the late 90s, and it was a smaller publication by a small publishing house called Stonehaven Press. But as time went on, I saw how the book needed to be a more encompassing look at the integral role of agriculture in a whole world system of complex issues. From the time that you got married and moved to the South with your husband, who was an agriculturalist, did you work alongside of him on projects? Did you learn the ropes of agriculture by working with him? (laughs) Well, truly, I was a very young mother. We got married when I was just a few months out of my teen years. Then we went to live after I finished my schooling in the South 
because he was graduating from Cornell and I had to go south and finish down here. I was so preoccupied with being a young mother, isolated, doing a part-time job in the town 10 miles away, teaching nurses, diet therapy, and so on. My involvement was watching him and how many hours he had to spend working on equipment, for instance, and how harrowing our finances were. Truthfully, my education in agriculture started with my father and my grandfather and uncles. On the orchard itself, I was not out there in the field every day. I would be now, now that I understand more, but in those days I was not. So when did you start developing your knowledge of agriculture, and how did that happen? Well, it really started on my my own homestead with my parents. My father was trying very hard to get food out of a yellow clay soil for the family while trying to hold down other jobs. He let me have a little piece of his garden, and I grew uh, what we called Indian corn, that multicolored corn. And that was my first introduction to growing things. Then I spent sometimes in summers on my grandparents' dairy farm. My grandfather worked very hard on that farm, and I saw that he was very intelligent, had intuition about weather and all kinds of circumstances, but it was still a very tough life. My grandma baked pies and breads to take to the farmer's market in order to make ends meet. When we were on the orchard, I found that that's what I needed to do too. That's why I was teaching nurses in town. It turned out I really had more instinct for agriculture than my husband, who was a natural engineer. It was a growing process. Over time, I became associated with other people after we became Baha'is. And we became Baha'is in 1973. And right away, we plunged into the life of uh, Baha'is. In that work, I met friends who were very interested in agriculture and felt that it was not understood by other Baha'is how important it was. We tried our best to promote it in places like at the Rabani Trust Social Economic Development workshops in Orlando in the 90s. One of my friends published a short compilation. We got involved with the Association for Baha'i Studies early on in the early 90s, late 80s maybe. When we, my husband and I, moved to Barbados, I really became an advocate there because I was not only teaching the importance of agriculture, I was actually working in small programs around the Caribbean in growing food in tires, which I'm an organic gardener. I had taught organic gardening in the community college in North Carolina. I was not attracted to this, but his boss 
was doing it, tires in that small island were a real problem. He couldn't go one time to another island, Anguilla, very small, three miles by six miles, to do some teaching of growing things in tires. The university's women were sponsoring this trip, and he asked me if I would do it. By then, I actually was satisfied that growing things in tires, the most danger was from the outside of the tire. They degrade very slowly inside, and I'd been in touch with Greenpeace and others. So to get on with it, I felt comfortable going to teach about tires and also about composting. It was there that I learned I had an aptitude for this. And by the end of the week, with radio programs and visiting people on the island and seeing that they were burning their tires and that black smoke was going out over the Caribbean Sea, but it's a small island. They don't have a lot of cars. So by the end of the week or soon after, they didn't have any more tires <laughs> to, to make into gardens. And I learned later at a UN conference on the island I was living on that the Anguillan extension officer I've been working with said that it had taken off and that he now himself had an orchard in the tires. And that was because the soil in Anguilla and the climate are very conducive, but their soil is so shallow and rock underneath, and they had to gather it, and the tires were perfect for that. Uh, how long were you in Barbados? Well, we went twice as what they call Baha'i pioneers, where you go and find a life somewhere where the faith wants to grow or is growing and needs assistance. And then a, another time we went and we didn't realize we were be, being called pioneers because we stayed, stayed there for several months. So over time, it accumulated to about 12 years. So you wrote this book, Food, Farmer, and Community, Agriculture and the Reconstruction of the World, after your Barbados experience? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's really recent. It was presented for sale in January of this year. I wanted it so much to be published last year because that was uh, the year of food for the UN. And there were conferences and big discussions and so on. But it was published early this year. Did this book take a long time for you to write? Well, yes. I did depend on the work that I had done to begin with in the late 1990s. But I wanted to enlarge it because the role of agriculture is so much more part of a complex world than we can imagine. I wanted to include resources and texts that I had not included in the first one. So this one has documents from the Baha'i international community to the world about agriculture and food and so on, as well as documents from our governing body of the world, which is the Universal House of Justice. They were not in the previous compilation.
So these are extracts of writings from these institutions? That's right, yes. Mm-hmm. Always included were the writings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, who we mm-hmm. believe is the messenger of God for this day, and of his son, Abdu'l-Baha, who was very knowledgeable about agriculture, of Abdu'l-Baha's grandson, Shoghi Effendi, who became the guardian of the Baha'i faith after his grandfather passed on. It's an interesting subtitle, Agriculture and the Reconstruction of the World. What is meant by the reconstruction of the world in that subtitle? Well, it comes from recognizing, as Baha'u'llah did, that the world's in great desperation. The principles of the administration of our human affairs have been lost in a disintegration of what we used to think was an orderly world. His words show that we have to pay special regard to agriculture, even above other very important things that have to do with governance of the world. If we're going to pay attention to getting a more peaceful, unified world, we've got to realize that our way of governance is not working, that our way of economics is not working, that our spiritual life certainly needs buttressing. And so in a tablet he wrote to a king, he said essentially that agriculture had to take precedence over these very important endeavors of striving for peace and for a common language that would unify and for promoting unity by developing good qualities of character and for educating the world's children. So it's stunning to see that he says a just and unified society relies on the farmer, that essentially the farmer is the first active agent in our body politic. Why is it that agriculture seems to be the foundation for the reconstruction of the world? Well, if we don't eat, we don't live, do we? And many wars have been fought because of needing land for agriculture. Many of the injustices in the world have to do with displacing the farmer from his land where he grows food. One of the reasons that I really, really wanted to write this book is the growing terrible food insecurity that we have today. In fact, the news these days is that 25,000 people die of starvation and related factors every single day in this world. And a primary place is Africa. Now, why does the population that understands agriculture be starving to death? Well, it's all related to many factors, but one of them is drought, brought on by what is now well-documented climate change. And why is that going on? Because the world is not recognizing how intertwined we are in our well-being 
and that we are not cooperating and being reciprocal. Those of us who have more wealth are very focused on our material well-being, which means we love to drive cars that use fossil fuel. We love our material goods that depend on fuels, all of which put carbon in the atmosphere, make it heat up, and now even the more wealthy countries are having fires because of this climate change and the dry air. We are learning very quickly, I think, I hope we're learning, that we've got to do something about governance. Because if we don't control ourselves, then we will not have food to eat and more and more people are going to starve. It's already happening. I want to get back to the way you felt in the 60s with the racial condition that you experienced in the South. I'd like to hear more about what your thoughts are about where we are today in regards to racial justice and what challenges still lay ahead for us based on your perspective from when you were aware of this issue back in the 60s. In the 60s, in that small North Carolina town, my first child was five years old, born in 1960, just after the poverty program comes in to our couple of county area, we needed to have a Head Start program. Now, my husband and I were already involved, as I said, with this group of folks working on racial justice. It was a biracial group. We had a Jewish woman, a Presbyterian woman, I think three black preachers, a black entrepreneur, us, and two white ministers, who I think eventually were forced by their congregations and the need for livelihood to begin to take a back seat, which I know had to distress them extremely. Fortunately for us, our livelihood did not depend on our activity. In 1965, one of my friends in this interracial group and I went out to try to find 15 children to start a Head Start class in what was traditionally the black school. We could only, in the short time we had, find 13 children, one of whom was white. She and I put her black daughter and my white son in that first Head Start class at that school. Soon after, when he's in the second grade, the integration has finally overwhelmed the powers that be, and they see they have to integrate the schools. It's slow going in North Carolina. That traditionally white school where my husband and my son had attended 
was disbanded because it was so old. And the younger, traditionally black school, became the segregated school for that part of town. So all of our six children went to that school in grade school. You asked how things have changed. Back in that day, we were working on things like the Klan had a restaurant in town, four doors down from a Baha'i's restaurant. And one day, our very dark-skinned friend decided he would see if it was true what was going on in that restaurant. What were the photographs that were displayed up near the ceiling? So he poked his head in the door, and the Klan leader took his cleaver and said, get out of here. The police chief, who somehow knew about us, a good guy, not anyone that was against our activity, called those of us available, three women, to come in, and he wanted to find out what was going on. I mean, naturally, he was a little worried. Is the Klan and our group going to have some confrontation? Well, we set his mind at rest. That was the sort of atmosphere in those days. By the way, one of my daughters was fast friends with that clan leader's niece. Interesting to see the diversity in a family, by the way. What do you mean by diversity in the family? Diversity of thought. As a matter of fact, two of my daughters were good friends with the two daughters of that clan leader's brother spent much time together. If we fast forward to just two weeks ago now, I don't live in that town anymore, but I got an invitation to go up there by the folks I had worked with in a a historical project that I had helped start called the African American Historical and Genealogical Society. They were celebrating the acquisition of that school that was no longer a school because a a new school had been built. It was a resource center, and they wanted it as a center to educate about black history as well. The county commissioners, five white men, voted against it. They did not want it. I do not know what changed their minds, but that little organization of mostly black women was able to purchase that building and celebrate a victory over what we could see is truly patriarchy and systemic racism still active. There's another example in my own city here. You want to talk about it? Well, I can, just briefly. In this city, the city council has created a human relations commission. And it has committees, subcommittees, that meet to advise the nine commissioners who have volunteered to look at justice issues in the city. Those volunteers are of a diversity of race, as are the committees. One of the things that I learned a couple of years ago by being on the International 
Relations Committee was that so often the idea that a committee is run by a chair that pretty much runs things according to their own viewpoint is dominant. And there was not the consultation, the listening to each other's viewpoint, the really getting down to the nitty-gritty of what our city, which has many different ethnic and countries represented, because we are a center for world relief organization that brings refugees in. It wasn't doing the work in my view. So I resigned. Looking back at it, I wish I had stayed to try to inculcate, if I could, some of the principles that Baha'is use in their own administration of consultation where you don't own your idea. You state it. Sometimes the viewpoints clash and there's a spark that flies. But when you stated your view, it goes in something like a soup pot in the middle and it stews around and out of that comes some decision that everybody works to make happen so that if it fails, it won't be because somebody was working behind the scenes to undermine it. So now, a few years later, there is a social justice committee, which I am working on, volunteered for, and hope that our black chairman, who's on the Human Relations Commission, will understand consultation better, and it appeared at our first meeting that he does. Also, at the same time, a group of us have started an inspirational citywide gathering every month to try to bring the different faiths together to work on racial justice. Similar to what you're doing in that arena, the Baha'is have a community building initiative that involves people of all faiths and no faiths. Can you describe this community building process for us? Well, it's bringing people together in neighborhoods. It usually starts at a grassroots level. What it is aiming to do is to bring people together to become friends, to really know each other, listen to each other, respect each other's viewpoints, to help us read our, I guess you could say the words, read our own reality. I live in a, I guess you would say, moderately low-income neighborhood with a variety of races and ethnic backgrounds. Now with the virus, I'm not able to have the meetings that I used to have in this neighborhood, which were devotional gatherings where you could bring people together and pray and talk about their personal concerns. It's a different time frame right now. What I hope to do is when the hot weather finishes to go out in the yard and begin to see if people want to come together and get acquainted. In the meantime, 
across the street, I've gotten acquainted with one of the soldier boys of that awful war in Africa, the child recruits. He's now an adult man living here, worrying still about his family in Sudan. But we have become friends. I take him vegetables and flowers. And just two days ago, he brought me organic carrot juice. Next door neighbor is African-American. He and I are good friends over the fence, and we help each other out. I deliver food and things to the children next door. I just did it today. They love my flowers, too. They're a family from Central America, and there are two families from other countries in Central America across the street that I deliver food to. So it's a somewhat transient neighborhood. So my African-American friend is the one that knows me the best and that we have been friends for a long time. That is the beginning of what I hope will be a community that if dire circumstances happen, we will come together because we will know each other, care about each other, and take care of each other. That's what community building is. And around the world right now, Baha'is everywhere are having conferences where we are inviting friends to collaborate with us on this process. Many of them already know how to build community, but it's not necessarily a multi-faith, multi-ethnic, multi-racial community. Those are some of the efforts that are going on in community building. And I think Abdu'l-Bahá told us that if we're going to advance in society, we have to have cooperation and reciprocity. That starts on a very personal, local level. What direction do you think your life would have gone in if you had not found the Baha'i faith? In the 1970s, my beloved Blue Ridge Mountains that I looked out on from my back door where our orchard had been were being bought up by the mafia. And our government was in trouble, big trouble, because of Watergate. I was getting severe headaches because the pollution of the cities was driving up against the mountains and I was breathing polluted air. All of those things made me very troubled. I was raising a young family. I wondered if God had left us alone. That was part of why I went looking. But in the meantime, I got an ulcer. And when my doctor told me that, I was cross with myself because I knew that the anxiety about the world was the reason that I had succumbed to an ulcer. I don't think if I had not found the Baha'i faith that I would have developed a multitude of skills too that by going pioneering, initially by working on racial justice in the U.S., I wouldn't have developed those skills. 
I did little puppet shows with friends when we had international potlucks at that little town in North Carolina, and we invited a diversity of the population, and we did the puppet show for the children. When I went to Barbados, we developed puppetry that ended up on UNESCO as a video that went to over 20-some countries. We created 20-foot puppets for a UN conference in Barbados that was uh, in the NGO area where they're talking about the virtues needed for sustainable development. I did radio, things that I never would have thought of if I had stayed in the States. Winona, who would you say have influenced you most in the direction in which your life work has taken? The word most presents a difficulty because I'm surely going to leave somebody out because multiple influences have shaped my commitments. Nobody in this world, I think, does things without a boost up from someone else or an accompaniment alongside someone else. I know that my husband, who's now on the other side, was encouraging me always to be me, to take risks and find joy and accept people as they are, whoever they are. That was a big help coming from the north to the south, where, bless their hearts, my in-laws, his family, were so very kind to me because I was so outspoken. I did not fit the culture, and yet they accepted me, loved me, and gave me a more wise view of how I should achieve things that I hope to to have an influence on. Our children today are such a help to me. They advise me, and I think since I'm an older person, in some ways they've taken on parenting me, which I welcome because they have a view that I was not trained in when I was younger. They know the world in a way that I don't know. They help me stay healthy, safe, and encouraged. Uh, My father loved nature and animals and trees and growing food, so he influenced me. And my mother also loved growing things, but she was so much about the underdog, she called it. So she got very upset with the population in our small town during and after World War II because they were bigoted against the Jewish refugee doctor who had come to town to take the place of our own two doctors who'd gone off to war. Here he was coming to help our health situation in the country that his own country was at war with, and yet they were not friendly. My mother was very upset with that. His daughter, Heidi, became my dearest friend. My aunts were teachers, and they were encouraging me to go to Cornell, well, to any university, because no one in my own personal family had done that yet. 
And then there's my Latin teacher in high school who helped me actually get into Cornell because she'd gone there and she knew the ropes. I'm also indebted to the professor of civil liberties course that I took that gave me good advice on going to the South, how to use wisdom. I wasn't so good at it at first, but I kept his advice in mind and I learned over time. I'm still learning though. I think I mentioned my grandparents. My grandfather had a dairy farm. By taking me on vacations as a child, I learned to love the rural life and to also understand its challenges. One great debt I owe is to the Puppetry of America Association because I was in Barbados and they were having their first workshop in Connecticut, and they were having the Henson puppeteers come and teach it, those people that you see on the Muppets. Yeah. Yeah. The man at the UN I was working with for UNESCO uh, said, why don't you apply? I was terribly intimidated. I had just finished that video there, but I wasn't trained, and this was to be television puppetry. Well, I was already doing television puppetry in my own simple way. So there were 20 people to be accepted, and 21 were accepted. And I really feel I was that one, the outlier who was doing puppetry in another country, trying to teach virtues to children. They are such humble people, so giving and generous. I also have to pay tribute to all my friends who are interested in agriculture and the Association of Baha'i Studies and the Baha'i Publishing Trust in the United States who took an interest in this compilation. I'm so very grateful. And there's so many more people. I know I'm leaving them out. That shows how you never do anything without help from other people. Well, Winnie, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to tell us your story and share your work, both in the area of agriculture as well as in race unity. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Winona Merritt, community builder and self-taught agriculturalist who published her recent book, Food, Farmer, and Community, Agriculture and Reconstruction of the World. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective. Time I see you use your own 
Your actions day by day become 
There was a tiny seed sleeping in the stony And shell of her casing burst. Fingers silently reaching out through the cold, dark night. She burst through the dark to the blazing light. Tree of peace, you may be just a sapling now. Still, I know your destiny. To grow into a mighty Springing from the dark 
Oh my